Good morning. Uh, just a couple of other quick announcements here before we get started with our message. Uh, number one, I wanted to uh, let you all know that we do have a new uh, church secretary. Uh, Teresa, if you'd stand up. Uh, Teresa's, Teresa's email address is Teresa at chilibible.org. So um, Jim and I are doing handsprings in the hallway over the fact that we now have administrative uh, support in the office. Um, very excited about that. Um, think that Teresa is going to do a great job uh, for us and, um, and fit in well with what we're trying to get accomplished in the office. So um, do direct your prayer requests and inquiries and calendar issues and all of that to Teresa now instead of Jim and I. And you will have someone competent to handle it. Uh, and that will be a good thing. <laughs> all right? Um, so we'll be making that transition uh, uh, this week. Uh, the other thing I wanted to draw your attention to, if you're a man, I'd like to draw your attention to this uh, little brochure. You may have seen some of these floating around in the hallway. Uh, this is the um, brochure for the Success That Matters seminar. Um, this is something that we're doing cooperatively with... Uh, uh, Rich Gerberding's uh, group, uh, the Men of AIM, uh, but also with uh, Chillicothe Christian Church and Chillicothe uh, First United Methodist Church, um, all of us together are putting this on. Um, it's it's a, a seminar for men. It's on a Friday night and a Saturday morning um, about finding significance as a man uh, uh, for the rest of your life. Uh, session one is finding the purpose for your life. Uh, session two, finding respect and honor at home. Uh, finding a new best friend in your wife is session three. And the last one is finding a deeper personal relationship with God. I'm doing that one. I'd like to encourage you all, if you're a man, to come, if for no other reason than to come and hear that one. Um, I know the speaker will be okay. All right? <laughs> um, serious enough, um, it's, it's 30 bucks, uh, and it, it'll be worth your time. And uh, the seminars are uh, based on material that's put out by Patrick Morley's uh, group called Man in the Mirror. Uh, and it's good stuff. Uh, I've seen it. I've looked at it. I wouldn't invite you to do it with me unless it were worth doing. So encourage you to, uh, to look into that. Um, now, let's get into our sermon here this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. So if you want to start finding your way there, let me ask you a question. <coughs> Have you ever uh, talked with someone and been, been sharing with them about God and about Jesus Christ and what he has done, only to have them basically mock you and say, well, show me. If you just show me, give me proof that God is real, uh, give me some kind of lasting, you know, supernatural something, then I'll believe. Well, uh, the story goes, there's a story that I, was, I heard um, years ago when I was at a student, I was a, a student at a uh, youth conference, and the conference speaker shared this story. He said, there was a university professor of philosophy, and I don't know if this story is true or not, but I never let truth get in the way of a good illustration, okay? Um, <laughs> but anyway, the story went like this, that there was... Uh, a university professor of philosophy, and he would spend a portion of almost every class period 
mocking his students who were Christians. And he would say to them things like this, do you seriously believe here in the 21st century in a sky deity who became a man and died on a cross and was raised from the dead? Seriously? You believe that if there is a God that he, she, or it actually cares about you? And then on top of that, that this, this being, whoever he, she, or it is, actually would condescend if he, he, she, or it actually exists to write his, her, or its thoughts in a book so that you could communicate with it? What a ludicrous, stupid, ignorant notion. And finally, there was a student who, who was just tired of it. She was a Christian and she was just done. She'd had it all semester. She said, you know, excuse me, professor, uh, but I, I, I am paying a great deal of money to take this class to learn philosophy, not to have you mock my religious beliefs. And the professor said, oh, well, excuse me. He says, I'll stop right here if we see some proof that God exists. And he picked up his coffee mug off the lectern, and he said, if God is real, then he can stop this coffee mug from shattering on the tile floor when I drop it. And he let go. And it fell and landed on his foot. And the class got quiet. And the professor went quiet for a couple of weeks until he was back on the same tirade riding the same hobby horse about how stupid it was to believe in God. Because, see, there are some people who are out there who, no matter what kind of proof they get, it's never enough. You know, Isaiah said, O Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. But I suspect that even if he did that, that there would still be a measure of people who would not believe. In fact, the Scripture tells us that that is going to happen. I've read the end of the book. And at the end of the book, Jesus himself reigns on earth from Jerusalem on a throne. And yet at the end of that, Satan is able to gather a group of people for a rebellion against God, even though he is physically living present among them. Remember, the same thing happened with the Israelites. They've got the Shekinah glory cloud leading them as a pillar of fire at night and as a cloud during the day that rests over the tabernacle, they can look and see God's living presence among them. And yet, in spite of that, they commit idolatry, they commit immorality, they uh, complain about, well, God's not providing for us. There's a, there's 
a certain kind of person who no matter what the evidence is, even if God is physically, visibly present among them, will not believe. And when we're looking here uh, at Mark chapter 8, you're going to see some people just like that. Okay, So if you've got your Bible, we're going to look at the first chunk here of Mark chapter 8. During those days, another loud, large crowd gathered. And since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They already have been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied, and afterward the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Uh, If you read your Bible closely, you'll notice that this incident has a lot of parallels to the other incident of feeding people. Uh, in in uh, Mark chapter 6. And in both cases, you've got a large crowd that's gathered in a remote place where it's not easy to get food, where there's no apparent solution to the problem of people being hungry. Uh, in both cases, Jesus multiplies the little amount of food that's available, sufficient to feed everyone, but there's there are some differences. Um, first of all, this this miracle takes place in the region of the Decapolis, the ten cities on the other side of the Jordan, on the east side uh, of the Jordan, where the country of Jordan is located today. Uh, the other miracle took place uh, in Galilee on the western side. And, and so Jesus is, is in the process of expanding his ministry. He had started out in Galilee around his hometown, and then he went to Capernaum, and then he went a little wider and a little wider and a little wider, and now he's on the, over in the Decapolis on the east side of the Jordan ministering. And there's a large crowd that's gathered in a remote area, and it's a ways from town. And they, there are people who need fed. And, um, and, and this crowd gathers, um, you know, in, in Mark chapter 6, you had the healing of a, uh, uh, well, last week we saw him heal a man who was deaf and mute, and that healing is what spread the word about Jesus. And these, and these people have all come out because they want to, they're interested in what he has to say because healing a deaf-mute man, amazingly enough, gets you an audience. And uh, these people are all coming out, and they stay with him three days. 
Now, probably, if you were going out to this remote area to listen to Jesus teach, you'd have brought yourself maybe some lunch. Maybe you even brought dinner because you thought, well, if it's really good, I'll stay till supper time. But these people have stayed for three days. Now, the, the nearest experience I've ever had to this personally was about, uh, about 10 years ago. Karen and I went to Africa together. And I went to preach in some of these remote villages, and I would get done preaching after about an hour and a half, and I had a couple of the elders criticize me afterward because that was all I had to say. <laughs> okay, um, these folks have been with Jesus for three days listening to him, and, and they have not had anything to eat probably since the first day, if then. And so they're hungry, and it's a ways back to wherever they came from. Jesus says some of them have come from a distance, and we can't send them home hungry. Uh, now, remember, this, the feeding of the 5,000 was, was chronologically not that long ago. And so Jesus says to his disciples, I have compassion on these people. They're hungry. They need food. You would think that they would go, oh, Jesus did this a little while ago with a bigger group. So all I've got to do is just ask Jesus, where do I need to stand while the miracle happens, right? What do I need to do to help? And instead, they have the identical same response that they had back in chapter 6. They say this, but where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? <laughs> and I mean, do you get the, I mean, some of this is intended to be sort of funny, or at least ironic. And he, and Jesus, so Jesus is patient with him, and he says, all right, how many loaves do you have? And they go, well, we got seven. And Jesus says, well, all right. And so he goes out to the crowd, and he has them all sit down, and then he and then he starts, he prays, he does the same thing he did with the feeding of the 5,000. He has them all sit down in groups, and he prays over the bread, and then it uses identically the same words, that he broke it, and then he kept giving it to his disciples. So he just keeps breaking bread, and there never seems to be any less of it. And he's had that one loaf for a while, <laughs> and he just keeps giving it out. And it says, and it kind of says as kind of an aside, well, they also had a few small fish, probably little dried fish of some kind, uh, that, you know, passing out bluegills. Here we go. Okay, <laughs> here's a chunk of dried bluegill for you, and a chunk for you, and a chunk for you, and he just keeps giving it out. And then, but notice, here's something that you might not see if you just have your Bible in English. There are two words for basket uh, in Greek. Uh, in the in the previous incident, the word for basket that's used is the Greek word spiridos. And you don't need to know that. Don't write that down or anything. But it's a word for a small basket, a little wicker basket that would, be, it would hold enough for one person maybe to eat. It's a lunchbox. Okay? Uh, the, the word here is the word kofinoi. And it's a big basket. It's a basket made out of rope or palm fibers 
that's big enough in some cases to put a man on the inside of. Paul, when he uh, escapes from Damascus, when he's being when he has to escape in, in the book of Acts, and they let him over the wall in a basket. It's not a spiritus, a little, you know, he's not like got his foot down in this little wicker basket hanging onto a rope. No, it's a giant basket. Like if you've seen Indiana Jones, the first movie, where Marion gets down inside the basket, it's that kind of basket. It's a big basket. And they've got seven of these big basketfuls left over of food. And the disciples are kind of clueless about the whole thing. But they, they leave the crowd behind, and they get back in the boat. And it's probably, it's probably either um, it's probably Peter or John's boat, maybe, that they're riding around in, because these guys were fishermen, so they would have had a boat. And they, they get in, and they go back to the other side. And as soon as they get to the other side, in this area called uh, Dalmanutha, um, they, are, they meet some Pharisees there, and these Pharisees are eager, eager to put Jesus to the test. Now, what has Jesus just done? A miraculous sign. What do they ask him for? A miraculous sign. And they say to him, give us a sign from heaven. And he says to them, why does this generation ask for miraculous signs? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Now, uh, don't misunderstand this. Uh, it's, is it wrong to ask God for a sign? Not necessarily. Uh, it is wrong to ask him because you do not believe. But it is fine to do as an, as an exercise of faith. In other words, like this. You, you, you say, Father, I do believe. Help me to have my belief in and trust in you confirmed. Okay? Now, that, not to say that God will always grant that prayer, but that's a totally different kind of a prayer than, um, well, show me something. Prove to me that you're real. As if somehow God is on trial and you're the judge. And that is what the, what the Pharisees are doing here. They've put themselves on the bench, and God in the, God in the, in the space of the accused, and said, well, show us something. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. And remember, what has Jesus been doing up to now? Healed a blind guy, <laughs> healed a deaf-mute man, cast out a bunch of demons. Feeds 5,000 people on one side of the lake and 4,000 on the other. He's going all around doing miracles. Healed a lame guy in front of a whole crowd of people who gets lowered on a mat down through the roof. Um, give, and they say, give us a miraculous sign that we may believe in you, right? They're not interested in believing. If they were then all the things he has done up to now would be sufficient evidence of proof. And they're asking Jesus to basically reduce himself to some sort of holy version of a dancing bear act. Perform for us on command, Jesus. Right now. Let's see something. Show me one. And Jesus won't do it. And so he says, he says, look, I'm happy to help people 
who are genuinely in need and who want to believe, if only I will help them. That's one thing. But for people who are not interested in believing, then I will give no sign to them. Because what that then does is not confirm them in their faith, but harden them in their unbelief. Just like that story I told of the professor at the beginning. Did God keep the cup from breaking? I don't know. But it didn't break. But did it did the re- professor repent? No. He just became more hardened in his unbelief because he did not respond to the evidence that God had given him. And at some point, people can respond to God that way where they they have evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence after more evidence, and they say to God, I reject every proof you are giving me. And I will not listen, and I will not hear, and I will not repent, no matter what happens. And God says, fine, I'm not going to give you any more evidence. And that's what Jesus does here with these Pharisees. Uh, And Jesus is upset. Uh, He is upset to a point where they don't even leave with any snacks. They just get back in the boat and go. And Jesus says, fine. And they get in the boat, let's go. And they go off uh, to um, they go off to the other side of the lake. Um, and while they're in the, in the boat, they're having a conversation. And the, it says in verse 14, the disciples have forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? What about you? Do you understand what Jesus is saying to them? If not, let me explain. Uh, The yeast of 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 the Pharisees and of Herod is the tendency of these folks, of, of Herod and the Pharisees both, to ignore the incredible miracles that Jesus has already done and to always be looking for just one more proof that Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be, which is the Messiah, the Son of God. And if they aren't careful, you know, yeast is one of those substances that you, when you make bread, you only need just a little bit of it. And then you work it in, and then it spreads to the entire lump of dough. And Jesus is saying that their unbelief, the unbelief of the Pharisees and of Herod, that's always looking for one more proof before they will believe, will spread even to the disciples. By the way, does it? At least with one guy it does. Spreads to Judas for sure, right? And so Jesus is warning them, 
don't always be looking for one more supernatural thing to say, well, I'll believe if God does this. If God never allows this to happen, if God will just do this for me, then I'll do this. He says that's the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Uh, You know, he says, look, guys, how many basketfuls did you pick up when I fed the 5,000 from five loaves? They said, well, we picked up 12 baskets. How many basketfuls did you pick up when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves? Seven. And then he says, do you have ears to see and don't see? Do you have ears to hear and don't hear? Don't you get, in other words, what I'm doing? What kind of a person, in other words, is able to do that? Only God can do that. Only God can take seven loaves and feed. I mean, I don't care how big the loaf is, okay? If it's still recognizable as a loaf of bread, which somebody would have with them, that they're going to feed 4,000 people and pick up twelve basket, or seven baskets and have five little loaves and, pick up, and feed 5,000 people and have 12 baskets left over? Only God can do that. And so he's asking them, do you still not get it? Do you still not understand who I am? What will it take before you can believe and see me for who I really am? What will it take? I've already given you, in other words, more than sufficient proof of my identity. What do you have to have, guys? Why are you talking about having no bread? Don't you get that a guy who can feed feed 4,000 men, besides women and children, on seven loaves, that having one loaf among the 13 of us is not a big issue? That in fact, if I want bread, we can have it right now. We can have it hot with butter. (laughs) Okay? It's not a problem. Why is it not a problem? Because you've got God in the boat. (laughs) I mean, come on. How dense do you have to be? That's what he's asking them. You have God in the boat. You think provision of fish is a big problem for him? You think snacks is is a big issue? This is the this is the being who flung the stars into existence and you were going, "Well, we don't have any bread. This is a big problem." <laughs> really? You think so? The God who spoke the sun into existence, who said, "Let there be and there is," now has a problem with snacks? <laughs> it's meant to be funny because it is. Because these guys are dense. They don't get it. They don't see who Jesus is, even though he is making it clear right in front of their eyes. They are the ones handing out bread by the bucketful from a few loaves to a bunch of people and they don't ever, it doesn't ever go through the frontal lobe of their skull that, that this guy might be someone a little unusual. That he is not just another random prophet from Galilee. That he is, in fact, 
the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, let's look here at this last miracle. Chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. They took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, Don't go into the village. Jesus has just gotten done telling his disciples to stop demanding more evidence that he is, in fact, the Messiah. But they get to Bethsaida, which is on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, as soon as he gets out, what's he do? He gives them more evidence. He finds this blind man, or actually this blind man is brought to him, and Jesus does what he did with the deaf mute man before. He takes him off to the side, and he gets him away from everybody. And this, I think, is the only incident in the, in the entire gospel record in which the healing takes place in stages. And he puts spit on the guy's eyes, and he says, and puts his hands on, the, on his eyes, eyelids and says, do you see anything? The guy's like, I see people, but they look kind of fuzzy and giant. And then Jesus touches the man again, and he's completely healed. And he tells him what he had told the deaf mute man earlier, which is, don't go tell everybody. In fact, he tells him, stay out of the village. Just stay out of there until I can go in there and minister. Because that's his goal. His goal is not simply to draw a crowd, but is to draw a crowd to him for the right reason, not simply for spectacle, but because they want to know him for who he is. And so he keeps he tells the guy to get out of the get out of the village and stay there. Now, this passage is not terribly complicated, but I want to encourage us, I want to use this use Jesus' words to encourage each of us to beware the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Jesus meant by that the pervasive tendency that we all have always be looking for God to perform for us so that we can trust him. Um, Let me ask you, if you haven't trusted in Christ personally, what is it going to take for you? What will convince you that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah, is the Son of God? What will it take? I, I said last week, and, and, and this is true, by the way, that within Christianity, within your Bible, you will find evidence over and over and over again that it's okay to have questions, it's okay to have doubts, it's okay to have things about God which bug you. People of faith down through the generations have had them. So if you have them, you are not alone. Okay? But there is a point at which your questions are no longer legitimate. What they are is a smokescreen to hide your unbelief. And so if you have questions, great. Seek the answers because they're there. You can find them in here. 
You want to know how God feels about suffering? You can find it in here. You want to know how God uh, feels about it when people abuse you and mistreat you and cheat you and lie to you? You can find it in here. You can find all of the answers to all of the hard questions. They're all in there. If you need help finding those answers, come see me and I will help you work it through. But just be sure that what you have are legitimate questions and not a smokescreen to hide your unbelief. To hide the fact that you have already decided that I will not bow my knee before God. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. If, on the other hand, you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are trusting him for your eternal salvation, what is keeping you from trusting him with your everyday life? A lot of us, you know, kind of operate that way where we, uh, we have an experience where we trust in Jesus Christ and we recognize our own sinfulness and our own depravity before God and the fact that everything about us is deserving of hell. And we say to God, Father, I am a mess. Save me, pull me out, as the psalmist said, of the miry pit. And give me a firm place to stand and make me your child. Give me membership in your family. Carry me home to heaven when I die. And we're willing to trust God with all of the ultimate things, but in the day-to-day stuff, we go, no, sorry, I got it handled. When it comes to our job or our marriage or our kids or our finances, we're not willing to trust God there. Even though compared to our eternal destiny, it's a much smaller issue. And when we refuse to trust God with the day-to-day stuff, what we're exhibiting is unbelief. And what we're saying to God is essentially, I believe you're trustworthy on this, but I don't believe you're trustworthy on this, because if you were, I would trust you. So maybe if you just show me, God, that if I trust you with my marriage or if you just show me god that i trust you uh that you're trustworthy with my finances if you just show me that you're trustworthy with my with my job if you give me one more proof that maybe then maybe i'll give you a little bit of a slice of this and you can be responsible for part of it <laughs> what we're doing is exhibiting unbelief we have let that little bit of yeast of unbelief work through our heart And we say, well, God, I don't want to trust you with that, so I'm not going to. I don't want to trust you with my finances because that's scary. I don't want to obey you there. That might require some sacrifice. That might make me uncomfortable. I don't want to trust you with my marriage because I'm doing such a fine job of screwing it up on my own. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I don't want to trust you with my kids because I'm doing such a fine job of screwing them up on my own that I'd really like to just continue down that pathway. And besides that, if I gave them over to you, you might do something with them I don't want, like send them over to China as a missionary or something. And I'm not sure I'm prepared for that. Beware the yeast of the Pharisee. It is always demanding of God more proof before we'll trust.